0: Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Desire the unadulterated milk of the word, like a newborn baby, that you may grow thereby. His divine power has given to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by virtue and grace, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, that by them uh, we may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption of the world through lust. Before we open God's word together this morning, let's bow our heads together in prayer. Our Father, thank you so much for the privilege we've had to remember our Lord's death and his person and his death on the cross for us, his work that has provided everything we need for our salvation. And we thank you for your word that has given us everything through life and godliness. Now, Father, we pray that as we study today and as we reflect upon these remarkable prophecies throughout the Scripture, in the Old Testament, Prophecies that are thousands of years before the birth of Jesus of Nazareth. Prophecies that are all true and have come to pass in his one life and person. Father, we pray that you would help us to understand these things and open our eyes to the truth. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, we are studying in Ephesians, and we are in a particular section in Ephesians chapter 4 where we are being reminded of the unity that we have in Christ. This is a unity that was created by God the Holy Spirit. It's not something we create. It's not something we can manufacture. But we are told in this passage that we are to be diligent to maintain that unity. And so as we look at have looked at this in the past, we have focused on the first part of this section in verse 4 talking about the God the Holy Spirit and his ministry to us. We have looked at his ministry to the world in terms of the his ministry in restraining evil and also in convicting or convincing unbelievers of the need for salvation, that we are all born spiritually dead, separated from the life of God without hope and without eternal life, and that the Holy Spirit makes clear to us of our desperate need that we are missing something, and that it is through trust, Faith in Christ that we are given new life. As Jesus said, I did not come like a thief to, dis- to destroy, but I came to give life and to give it abundantly. And so at the time of salvation, we've studied those ministries of God the Holy Spirit that He regenerates us, He gives us new life so that we are a new creature in Christ. We are baptized by means of the Holy Spirit so that we are identified with the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. God the Holy Spirit indwells us. He seals us. And then the one ministry that we're commanded to allow to happen is the filling. The others are all automatic. There's no commands to be uh, baptized, no command to be indwelt, no command uh, to be sealed. We are commanded, though, to be filled by means of the Spirit. This is part of the topic that Paul has opened at the beginning of chapter four, that we are to walk worthy of the calling, that is, we are to walk worthy of that exalted position that God has invited us to. And this is paralleled in a passage in Philippians one twenty seven where he says, only let your way of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. That is the good news that Christ has died for your sins and you can have eternal life and be part of God's royal family. So that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear about you, that you stand firm in one spirit. Notice the emphasis there on unity, which will be expanded in the beginning of the second chapter, that you stand firm in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. So this is a theme throughout Paul's epistles of the unity that we have in Christ and that we are to be diligent to maintain that unity. But being diligent to maintain that unity involves other facets as well. And this is what is brought out in this section from 4 through 6 where he focuses on a quick summary of the roles of God the Holy Spirit, then God the Son, and then God the Father. We've studied through the ministries of the Holy Spirit referenced in Ephesians 4.4 4, that there is one body and one spirit. The body refers to the body of Christ the church, composed of all believers, Jew and Gentile united together in one body as we have seen. There's no distinctions, there's no ethnic distinctions, there's no economic distinctions, there's no gender distinctions. We are all one in Christ with equal access by one spirit, as Paul said in Ephesians chapter 2. We're one body and one spirit, we were called in one hope of, our, of your calling. Verse 5 is where we are this morning. We're beginning with one Lord, one faith, one baptism. These three relate to God the Son. And then in Ephesians 4, 6, One God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. So this morning we are looking at this statement at the very beginning that there is one Lord. And so we have to probe this because it's so brief, it's so so abridged. What in the world does he mean when he talks about one Lord? And we have to understand this in light of what is taught in the Hebrew Scriptures of the Old Testament Much of what we find in the New Testament has its roots and origin back in the Hebrew scriptures of the Old Testament. The Old Testament really should simply be called the Older Testament and the New Testament, the Newer Testament, but that's another topic, because they flow together. And we are reminded when we read this statement, one Lord, because as we'll see in a second, Lord is a reference to his deity— that we are reminded of what is called the Shema in, uh, in Judaism. Shema is the Hebrew word to hear. And in this particular case, in the imperative mood, it is to listen, as you might hear someone say, listen up, pay attention. Here, and when, when, you, when this is said in both Old and New Testament, it is not simply the idea of having your auditory nerves stimulated, but to respond to the command in obedience. And so the command is, Hear, O Israel, uh, Shema, Shema Israel, uh, Yahweh Eloheinu, Yahweh is one. Now, it's translated differently in the Hebrew Bible. And I point this out every time because it is so fascinating. Since the end of the first century, after Christ, who claimed to be God, there was a reaction among the Orthodox Jews that this statement really means the Lord is a unitary Monothe, mon- uh, unitary God, a singular monotheistic interpretation. But in the in 1986, the Jewish Publication Society published a new translation of the Tanakh. The previous translation came out in 1918, and it sounds a lot like the King James in in the language. So it's probably modified a little bit from from a previous translation. But that's the traditional translation that you will hear. The Lord is our God. The Lord is one. But the word there and the structure and the context doesn't necessarily indicate a singular monotheism. It is the Lord alone. The context is prohibiting idolatry. And so you have this statement that God is God alone. There is only one God that the so-called gods and goddesses of the various religions and pantheons of the world are, are not they 're not gods; they are uh, figments of human imagination and Deuteronomy warns us that what 's really behind these false gods and goddesses are various demons and I pointed out uh, in a recent study of of this that when uh, when John Milton. ...wrote Paradise Lost, which is a tremendous epic poem describing the uh, fall of Satan and his temptation of Adam and Eve in the garden. uh, In the edition I have, it's a couple of hundred pages long. But in there, when he is describing the various angels that followed Satan, he gives them names, and he names them Baal and Moloch and Thor and Jupiter, Zeus, whatever, all of these various gods and goddesses of the various pantheons, showing that John Milton was quite uh, well-informed theologically, and he understood that the demons were the real personages behind the behind the idols and so this is the thrust the lord is lord alone but it's not a singular monotheism as we've studied that throughout the old testament there are passages that indicate that there's a plurality within the godhead and we looked at this last time and we see passages like uh, Isaiah 48:16 where someone is speaking we don't see who it is right right away and he says, "'Come near to me.'" So that's the person speaking. And he says, "'Listen to this. From the first I have not spoken in secret. From the time it took place, I was there. And now the Lord God has sent me and his spirit.'" So the Lord God references God the Father. Me it references the second person of the Trinity, who we see as the Lord Jesus Christ before he entered into human history. And third, his spirit. So there we have the triune God represented in the Old Testament. So this is our focus here that this one Lord is the same God worshiped by Israel that exists as uh, three persons, yet one essence. And I used this diagram last time that we have at the center the essence of God that is intimately shared by the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit so that they are a a unity of of essence, but they exist in three persons. A good way to remember this is when God sings a solo, he sings in three-part harmony. Harmony. That will help you put that together. So that the Son is not the Father, and He is not the Spirit. The Father is not the Holy Spirit, and the Father is not the Son. And the Holy Spirit is not the same as the Son, not the same as the Father. They're not three different manifestations. So when we look at this passage here in Ephesians 4, we have to address the questions of what does Lord mean? Second, who is this Lord? that is the one Lord that we have? And third, how do we know He is Lord? Three distinct questions. So what does the Bible teach about Jesus as the one Lord? Well, first of all, we have to understand what Lord means. What does it translate? And in the Greek, it translates the word kurios. And the word kurios refers to people in different realm, different associations, different roles. It can refer to a person in charge, a person who owns a business or a property. It is similar in the use of, in English, we refer to someone as sir. It is a polite form of address to somebody who is an authority, somebody who is older, somebody who is uh, uh, distinctive in that case. But it is also used as a reference to deity. It is used in reference to deity in the pagan religions, and it is addressed to pagan gods. And in the scripture, Kurios is the translation when it translates from Old Testament Hebrew, it's the way in which the name of God, Yahweh, is translated. So in English, you have the word Lord, and that can, when it's translated with the English in lowercase, that is a reference to Yahweh. If it's translated, I mean, when it's translated in uh, small caps, it refers to Yahweh. When it's translated in in lowercase, it usually is translating, in the Old Testament, it's usually translating uh, the Greek, uh, excuse me, the Hebrew word Adonai, which is similar to master or sir, someone who is in authority. Or uh, it can, if you have the phrase Yahweh Elohim, if Yahweh is translated as God, that will be in small caps, and then Lord God, if Lord is lowercase with God in small caps, then that is also a reference to Yahweh Elohim, depending on how it's structured in the, in the Hebrew. So when we ask the question, what, who is the one Lord, it's very clear in the New Testament that Jesus of Nazareth is that one Lord. And we see that in a couple of different ways. One way we see it is throughout the scriptures, we see the writers of scripture quoting from Old Testament passages that are addressed uh, to Yahweh in the Old Testament, but they are then applied to Jesus in the New Testament. So they see these passages as being fulfilled by Jesus when they are addressed to Yahweh in the Old Testament. So that is identifying uh, Jesus as, as Yahweh. And s- a few verses when we get into the section from verse 7 down to verse 14, there's a quote in verse 8 from Psalm sixty-eight eighteen that begins when he ascended on high. The one who ascended on high in the original context is Yahweh. But this is now applied to Jesus. So you have many, many passages like that in the, in the uh, New Testament. Another way that this occurs is by the various claims of Jesus to be God. And one place, we see several of these in the Gospel of John. In John five fifteen through 18, we read that at this the man departed. This is a man Jesus has just healed. The man departed and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. For this reason, the Jews persecuted Jesus and sought to kill him because he had done these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, my father has been working until now and I have been working. Now, for most of us, that seems like a fairly innocuous statement But the Jews did not see it as innocuous. They understood what he was saying, that he was claiming that as the Father was working, he was working, and they were the same. And so when Jesus made this statement, it's structured in such a way that he's communicating that he is equal to the Father, and we know that because of their reaction. In verse 18, "...therefore the Jews sought all the more to kill him." because he not only broke the Sabbath, but also said that God was His father, making himself equal to God. Now I remind you, there is an idiom in, in Hebrew that if you had the characteristics of something, for example, if you were, uh, if you were a murderer, you would be called the son of a murderer. Doesn't mean your father was a murderer. It means that you exhibit the characteristics of being a murderer. If you're a fool, you're called the son of a fool. You have the, all the characteristics of a fool. So if you're calling God your father, you're saying that you are the son of God, and that you are God. That's what the that's what the uh, what the word what the phrase would mean. And so they clearly understand that, and they want to uh, they want to kill him. In John 8:58, he has another conf- confrontation with the Jews. And Jesus says to them in the course of this whole discussion he had talked about Abraham and other things and they say, Oh, we are sons of Abraham and so uh we we are uh we are free. And so Jesus says makes another comment about Abraham and they basically respond by saying, Well well you, you you've just been born you're not thirty years of age, you're just born recently. So what do, you, what do you know about Abraham? And Jesus' response is, Most assuredly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Present tense. I am is the translation of the meaning of Yahweh. When Moses asks God, when God is speaking to him at the uh, burning bush, he asked God, "Well, who do I say sent me to the Jews? How will I how will I be able to explain this so they'll believe me?" And God says, "Tell them I am has sent you." And the name Yahweh is a form of the Hebrew verb hayah which means to be or to exist, and so his name has the idea of the self-existent one, the one who has no beginning and no end and his uh, the uncaused cause. He is the self-existent one. And the Jews understood exactly what Jesus said when he said before Abraham was past tense, I am, that he was making a claim to deity because in the next verse it says, then they took up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple going through the midst of them and so passed by. Again, In John 10.30, Jesus makes the statement that I and the Father are one. We are a, a unity. We are distinct persons, but we are so close, we are one in essence. And what did the Jews do? Well, they have one response. They pick up stones again to stone him because they believe that he is committing blasphemy. So Jesus clearly claimed to be God. Now, when somebody claims to be God today, we think that, that either they're lying or that they're crazy. But Jesus doesn't exhibit the characteristics of either a liar or someone who is psychotic. He exhibited the characteristics of someone who, uh, who was completely self possessed, had complete confidence in himself, and that he is speaking the truth. So when people come along and they say, well, Jesus was a good man, he founded a good religion, he taught people how to, how to live, he was a great teacher of the Bible, uh, you can't say any of those things. Because Jesus made these audacious claims that he was God, and he claims that he is the only way to God, and he claims that apart from him there is no salvation. And if he's making those kinds of claims, he's either the greatest deceiver and the most evil deceiver in all of human history, or he's who he claimed to be. And that's why it is important to examine the claims of deity. And some of that is based on the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, and what uh, prophecies are there. Now, as as I introduce this, I want to make a few statements about what was necessary to qualify someone as a prophet in the Old Testament. We have lots of people who make all kinds of claims to predicting the future. You have people who attempt to uh, tell the future through the use of tarot cards. Others seek to tell the future by getting in contact with the dead through some sort of seance. You have others who attempt to tell the future through various uh, means of divination. And you have those who attempt to tell the future on the basis of the stars and astrology. And they, they get some things right, so people think that they have some credibility. But in the scriptures, you're not credible if you just get some things right. The requirement in the Bible is that you're either 100% right or you're stoned. And I don't mean high on something. (laughs) You're either 100% right or you're going to be dead. You're going to be executed, and the punishment in the Scriptures was was for stoning. So in Deuteronomy chapter 13, in 10 verses, spells out uh, one of these requirements for prophecy. And one test to determine the accuracy of a prophet was that he had what they said had to agree theologically and doctrinally with what was known to have been revealed by God. So it's the test of consistency. It's the test of accuracy. If they said something that was in violation of what was revealed, then you knew it was a false prophet and the penalty was death. The example that they use is uh, if if someone comes along and says, oh, let's go worship this God or that God, then you know that they are contradicting Scripture which say, where God says, I am God alone, you will worship no other. And as a result of that, you know what they're telling you is false, and they're not a prophet, so they should be stoned. It, to claim to be speaking from God... And leading people and deceiving people at that level is such an egregious, such a horrible, such a terrible thing that the penalty for that under the Hebrew Scriptures is death. To claim to be God and not to be God would be worthy of death. The second passage that deals with the qualifications for a prophet can be found in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 20 to 22 and there we see that predictions should come true in every detail if not the penalty was death for example in Deuteronomy 18:20 god says but the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name which i have not commanded him to speak or who speaks in the name of other gods that prophet shall die death penalty how do you know it? Verse 21, and if you say in your heart, how shall we know the word which the Lord has not spoken? Okay, so granted we'll, we'll execute them, but how do we know? How can we There's all kinds of people that come along and say that they have revelation from God. You have Muhammad who goes to the mountain and there is an angel that reveals some new scripture to him and he claims that God has revealed it to him. Well, what's the test? Well, the first test is, does it agree with the Old Testament scriptures that are from God? That's your benchmark. Well, in the Old Testament, it says that God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and that the line of the seed will go through uh, Abraham's son Isaac. But the Quran says that the line goes through Ishmael, so that's a contradiction. Secondly, in the Old Testament... Uh, it tells us that the Jews are God's chosen people through whom the scriptures will come and through whom the Savior will come. But not in the Quran. In the Quran, the Christians and the Jews are the most evil people, and so they are called upon in the Quran to slay all of the Christians and all of the Jews. That's part of jihad. This is at the core of Islam. Yesterday, I was sickened yesterday morning. I couldn't watch what was going on in New York because the people who were there, the government officials that were representing the United States, do not believe in the United States, and they do not believe that Islam is evil or that the perpetrators were doing exactly what the Quran told them to do. And they were calling Islam the religion of peace. And that is such a perversion. If you study Islam, people are grouped into two groups. One group is the house of peace, Salam. The other group is the house of war. Peace, the religion of peace, is only for those who are in the house of peace. That is, those who are following Muhammad, those who are following Islam. But those who do not follow uh, Muhammad, who do, do not follow Islam, they are in the house of war, and those in the house of peace are justified in lying, killing, murdering, doing whatever they want to to those in the house of war, because the house of war are the sworn enemies of the house of peace. So when you call Islam the house of peace, you are buying into the lies and deceptions of Islam. And so... Muhammad made these claims that are absolutely contrary to the Old Testament. So he is worthy of capital punishment according to the Mosaic law. You also have others that come along and say that God has spoken to them. You have uh, the founder of Christian science, Mary Baker Glover Patterson Eddy. And she makes claims that everything is really sort of a mirage. We don't really feel pain. We don't really get sick. We don't have COVID 19, and nobody has really died. That's all a mirage. We just have to, it's very platonic. It's not biblical. It's totally false. And on and on we could go. You have people say, Well, God, I I had a dream last night. God told me to do this. Well, let's just examine that in the light of Scripture. And it doesn't fit. But we have some prophecies in the Old Testament that tell us what the Messiah will be like. Now, in the Talmud, it recognizes this that none of the prophets prophesied except about the days of Messiah. So, in rabbinical Judaism, by the second or third century, when the Mishnah is codified and written down, although everything had been part of oral tradition for several centuries they recognize that everything ultimately in the Old Testament is going to point toward the coming of the Messiah. Moses Maimonides, who lives roughly uh, around the 10th or 11th century AD and is considered one of the greatest philosophers and uh, uh, rabbis in Judaism, says, This belief in the Messiah is in accordance with the prophecies concerning him by all the prophets from our Master Moses until Malachi, peace be unto them. Now, of course, he didn't recognize that those prophecies were fulfilled in Jesus, but he recognizes that the Old Testament is filled with prophecies foretelling the Messiah, the coming of the Messiah. Alfred Edersheim, who was uh, a Jew who came to understand that Jesus was the promised and prophesied Messiah, writes in his book, The Life and Times of Jesus the Messiah, says, quote, the passages in the Old Testament applied to the Messiah or to Messianic times in the most ancient Jewish writings amount in all to 456 that in the Hebrew Scriptures from Genesis to Malachi, he's added them all up that he could find, and there are 456 specific prophecies of the Messiah in the Old Testament. He says 75 are from the Pentateuch, 243 from the prophets, and 138 from the writings, the Hagiographer, and supported by more than 558 separate quotations from the rabbinical writings. That's an enormous amount of literature. Now, these Messianic prophecies, what what does Messiah mean? Messiah is from the Hebrew word Mashiach, which means the anointed one or the appointed one. So this word is applied to the promised one who would come and save us from sin. So I'm going to run through some of these rather briefly because we had the Lord's table this morning. Um, We're short on time. But in Luke 4, 16 to 20... We read in Luke 4:17 uh, of an event which occurred when Jesus is attending the synagogue in Capernaum, or na- uh, na- excuse me, Nazareth, his hometown. He was living in Capernaum uh, later, and it's no, it's it, it, it's no accident that he shows up on this particular day. Jesus is omniscient; God has a perfect plan. And by this time in in the synagogues, they had a regular reading. They had a calendar. Every Sabbath they would read certain passages. So on this particular Sabbath, Jesus knew they that the reading was from Isaiah uh, chapter 61. And so he shows up in Nazareth, his hometown, on the day that this is going to be read, knowing that he would be asked to read. And so they hand him the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written. And then he starts to read it. Now, this is a passage that goes from verse 1 to verse 3, but he's going to stop in the middle of verse 2. Because what he is saying by that is that that much of the prophecy is fulfilled today, right in front of your eyes, people. And they understood that's what he was saying. So he reads, the passage reads, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, And recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Now, what has Jesus been doing since he was baptized by John the Baptist and began his ministry? He has been uh, ministering to the poor, he has been proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, he has been healing those that had physical diseases, as well as those who felt hopeless in life. He has uh, proclaimed liberty to the captives. He has healed lepers. He has given sight to the blind. And they have heard all of these stories. And he is making a proclamation that he is the Messiah and he has come to fulfill these things. And then it says he closed the book, gave it back to the attendant, and he sat down. And all the eyes and everybody in the synagogue are staring at him. They understood exactly what he is saying that he is proclaiming that he's fulfilling those prophecies right there. And he began to say to them in verse 21, "Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing." What did they what did they want to do? What was their response? They they wanted to execute him. And he disappeared from their midst. Isaiah 61 1 through 3, as you see here, uh, reads the same. When we get down to verse 2 here, we see that it ends, as Jesus read it, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to console those who mourn in Zion, to give them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they may be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. But you see, when he stopped at the end of this statement, the acceptable year of the Lord, he, he's indicating there's a pause in the fulfillment between what goes what is said in verse one down to the middle of verse two. And the next part, which is the day of vengeance, that relates to the prophecies in the Old Testament that there will come a time in the future of that, that will bring wars like there have never been in the history of humanity. It will be called the time of Jacob's trouble. Jacob is the other name for Israel. It is a time of intense pers- persecution of the Jews that this will come in the future, all of these things. And so when Jesus breaks at that point, it shows that there is a difference between what he will accomplish in the first coming and then what comes in the day of vengeance. At the end of the day of vengeance, Christ will come to rescue and deliver the Jews. And so he is making a clear statement that he is Messiah and that he is coming to accomplish those things in the first part and then that which comes later later will come later, not the first time. So we'll wrap it up there because of time this morning, but next time we'll come back and we will examine other prophecies and their fulfillment. And we will look at around 25 different prophecies, some of which we've looked at before, and we're just going to hit the high-water mark, but what we will see is the prophecies from the Old Testament indicated that the Messiah who comes, as it says in Micah 5.2, is the one who's going forth are from eternity. That indicates that he's eternal, he is God, but that he is born. He is going to be born in Bethlehem, that's physical birth. We know that he is one who will come and be born, but he will be called what? Emmanuel, God with us, Isaiah nine six. And that's just just the beginning. But we'll look at all of these prophecies that were literally predicted and literally fulfilled when Jesus came the first time. There are over 100 prophecies that were made anywhere from 400 years before Christ to 1,500 to 2,500, 3,000, 4,000 years before Christ, all of which are fulfilled by him literally, not of those hundred. And the odds of that happening are astronomical. That one person would fulfill even ten of those prophecies is virtually impossible. And the illustration I use is that's like covering the whole state of Texas to a depth of four feet with silver dollars, about that big, and one of them being marked and somebody being blindfolded and the chances of them going anywhere from here to El Paso, down in the depths of Paladura Canyon, uh, across the deserts of Big Bend in West Texas, up into the piney woods of East Texas, all the way down to the valley, that somebody's going to go out and blindfolded pick that one coin that is marked. It's impossible. But they're all fulfilled. Not just ten, but... Over a hundred prophecies are fulfilled in Christ. That's why we know that he is the promised one predicted in the Old Testament who fulfilled God's plan of salvation and died for us on the cross that we might have eternal life. Let's bow our heads together and go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we're thankful for all that you have given us in your word, that you have provided so much information for us and that this has been revealed to us over a period of uh, 1,500 years from the time that Moses writes the first five books of the Old Testament around 1,500 B.C. up until the completion of the New Testament in 100 A.D. We know that in all of that there there are over 400, almost 500 prophecies of the Messiah and 125 or more of which have been fulfilled at the first coming. And this could not be by chance. It could not be by coincidence. It could only be as a result of your planning, your purpose, and your mighty hand. So, Father, we thank you that we have this, that we do not believe in a vacuum, but we believe because there are many convincing proofs that Jesus is who he claimed to be and he did what he said he would do to pay the penalty for our sins. He was indeed the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So, Father, we pray that you would help us to understand this, and we pray for those who are here or those who are listening on the Internet uh, that they would recognize that the authentication of Jesus as the Messiah and the Savior, and that this cannot be by pure chance and the importance of trusting in Christ as Savior, for there is no salvation in any other name. There is none but Christ on whom to believe for eternal life. We pray that you might make those clear to all the hearers. And for those of us who are believers, it it gives us great confidence and it gives us great assurance of the truth of your word. And so even when times are dark, we can go back to these truths, to these principles, to these realities, and know that what we have believed is absolutely correct. And Father, we thank you for this time of worship today. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.